verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has granted him the name that is above every name in order that at the name of Jesus every knee would bend of those celestial and of those terrestrial and of those subterranean and every tongue would acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord unto God the Father's glory. Now let's once again look to God and ask his blessing, the ministry of his word. Father, as this morning we tread on holy ground, as we consider the glorification of Jesus. Enable by your grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit. That what is said about his glory. Would please you. That what is said would accurately reflect your word. Both in its content and in its spirit. That your great name at the end of the day, because this is what it's about, would be honored and glorified. That the focus and attention of every heart would be upon Jesus and his honor, his splendor, radiance, and glory. We ask these things in his name. Amen. The Apostle Paul said that it was his privilege to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. That Christ has riches that are beyond human comprehension. We can understand truly and accurately as far as human comprehension goes what those riches are. But we can never understand them exhaustively or completely because the riches of the glory of Christ are unsearchable. And I tell you honestly, I feel myself not only privileged but radically inadequate to address to you today the glory of Jesus. Last time we looked at his humility, how when he was found or when he had appeared on earth in outward appearance like an ordinary man, he humbled himself. We saw how he humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient an entire life of perfect, flawless obedience to the will of God revealed in the word and law of God. And our text now points to the outcome or upshot of that life of obedience that ended in his death upon the cross. We read, therefore God highly exalted him. Paul talks about the revelation of the glory of Christ in history. And in God's word, we have the infallible revelation of the glory of Christ. 
Then he says that when he highly exalted him, he gave him the name that is above every name. That the glory that Christ has is unsurpassed, unequaled, incomparable. Nothing can be compared to it. So Christ's glory has riches that are incomparable, unparalleled. And then once he says that, he focuses in the rest of the passage upon the result of Christ being glorified. So what consequence, what result, what impact, what outcome? does this glory of Christ have? He says, this is God's design. He says that God highly exalted him with a glory that has riches incomparable with a design purpose, which absolutely and inevitably must come to pass. And what is that purpose? that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bend and every tongue would acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. So I want to consider three things that grow out of the text this morning about the glory of Christ. The first thing is the infallible revelation of that glory. Second thing is the incomparable riches of that glory. And the third thing is the inevitable result of that glory. Now, first of all, consider with me the infallible revelation. Notice how he starts. He says, therefore, therefore, God highly exalted him. So observe, therefore indicates this, that the glory that God has bestowed on Christ, the God-man, is grounded upon and grows out of and comes in consequence of and flows from his obedience and humility. That he humbled himself by becoming obedient throughout his entire life unto death. The perfect obedience of Christ is the ground of his glory. Therefore, God highly exalted him. And he exalted him with a superlative glory that cannot be surpassed, that is incomparable because his obedience was incomparable. That is, nothing could be compared to his obedience. And because nothing could be compared to his obedience, nothing could be compared to the glory that he receives because of that life of perfect obedience. Now, after the sermon last week, somebody who was here listening to the sermon, listening very well, very carefully, approached me and said this, The person said, look, 
said, I understand what you were saying about Christ. If I could use an athletic illustration, the person said, from this game of baseball, Jesus pitched a perfect game. I said, that's right. Well said. Exactly. Very good. Now, I thought, in order to illustrate how the obedience of Christ, the perfect obedience of Christ, is incomparable, incomparable to anybody else, whatever else they did, I thought, let me build on that beautiful insight that that person had who came and listened. I hope, by the way, when you all come to church, you all listen very good like that person did last week. And you get it just like that. And I love it when people have little homey illustrations. That's not my strength. But some people, they have that strength. They have these beautiful little illustrations. So if you have, you think of great illustrations like that, please come tell me. I'll use them. And I'll give you credit. <laughs> I won't pretend it came from me. But that, that, now, now listen, here's the thing. Here's the thing. The, well, how can I use that to illustrate it? So I looked it up. You know what I found out? Well, this is what Siri told me. So you have to you check on your own Siri if you want. But Siri told me, and for those of you uh, on Mars who don't know what Siri is, okay, fine. All right, Siri, Siri, I can't help you. Siri told me, Siri told me that there have been approximately professional baseball games pitched about a quarter of a million games in the history of baseball, about, about 250,000 games been played, pitched. I can't say I watched all of them, but I watched a lot of them. But out of those games that have been pitched, you know how many perfect games there have been? Out of a quarter of a million games about? Approximately. There have been only recorded officially 23 perfect games. And no pitcher ever did it twice, according to Sears. Uh, I remember I remember the ones that some of the Yankees pitched, but that's about it. But anyway, I like three of them. But anyway, be that as it may, that's not my point. My point is, in a whole history of baseball, there's only been 23 perfect games, and nobody ever did it twice. So I said, well, what does that have to do with Jesus? So if you want to look at his whole life as a perfect game, he pitched a perfect game. But now, what I want to take that and build on it to illustrate how incomparable what Jesus really did is. Because he did what nobody else ever could do. 23 people did this. But what he did, 23 people can't do. Nobody else but him could have done it. Now, how am I going to do that? Well, let's look at a pitcher's season. Now, a typical starting pitcher used to be, I don't know, today it's probably less, but used to be, you, you, you didn't know you were coming to church to get a baseball lesson today, did you? But a, a starting pitcher would pitch 30 games in the season. Right? So if you want to look at it, his life as a season, and he's a starting pitcher, he didn't pitch one perfect game. He pitched a perfect season. Every single start was a perfect game. He pitched 30 perfect games. Oh, nobody, yeah, okay. Now that's, on, that's incomparable, isn't it? Let's take it further. Let's think of his whole career. Let's say he has a career of 30 years. Every year starts 30 games. He has a perfect career. 30, 30, 30, 30, 30 perfect games a year for 30 years. His record, 900 and zero. 
Never walked a sinner. Never gave up a hit to sin. None of it. He pitched 30 perfect games a year for 30 years. Now that's incomparable. That's unthinkable. And do not think that word means what you think it means. Because I just thought it. But that's incomprehensible. But that's why what he did is unique and special and could never be repeated or could never be done by anyone else ever. And that's why, because what he did is incomparable. Because his obedience, there's nothing like it, and there never will be, and no other human could ever do what he did, live a perfect life. That's why his glory is incomparable. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave to him the name that is above every name. Now, when we look at the infallible revelation of God highly exalting or elevating him, what does the Bible say that means? What did God do? Jesus died on the cross. Was that the end of his story? No. The Apostle Paul himself, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, describes what that means. He says, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe, according to that working of the strength of his might, which he wrought in Christ when he did what? When he raised him from the dead and made him to sit at his right hand in the heavenly places on the third day. God elevated him. He highly exalted him. On the third day, his human soul returned to his dead body and his body was glorified so that Christ is the first fruits of them that sleep in death. His soul, his body now glorified, reunited forever in resurrection life in a glorified body that can never die again. This is how God highly exalted him. He actually, really, in history, and truly raised him from the dead. And the apostles saw him and ate and drank with him and spoke with him. Actually, really, truly, in history, space, and time, after he rose from the dead. And on the 40th day, they saw something else. They saw him in his human body, now reunited to his human soul, God the Son, the God-man incarnate. They saw him go up through the air, ascend up into heaven. His body went up through the atmosphere, up into heaven, and we read that he disappeared into a cloud out of their sight. And when he got up into heaven, in his now glorified body, reunited with his human soul, God highly exalted him, sat on the throne of heaven, on the throne of God and David, and David. There he enthroned him. There he crowned him. You have his elevation and his coronation. God, Peter said, 
has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The Bible reveals infallibly how God highly exalted Christ, raised him from the dead. He ascended into heaven and he sits on the throne of heaven at God's right hand, glorified, exalted and magnified. In terms of the glorification of his human nature, look at the contrast from what happened when God the Son became human and when God highly exalted God the Son. When he became human, in his humiliation on earth, he was visible. Now, in his exaltation in heaven, his human nature is still visible because he has a real, genuine human body. When he was here on earth, he was vulnerable. But now that God has highly exalted him, he is invulnerable. In his human nature, he can no longer be harmed by sinners or tempted to sin. That is over and done. God has highly exalted him. They can't spit on him anymore. They can't hurt him anymore. Can't insult him anymore. They can't do anything to harm him anymore. And his human humanity and his human nature, he is out of the devil's reach. Can't bother him anymore. When he was here, in his human nature, his human body, his human soul, he was terrestrial. He was here on earth in his bodily presence. But now that he's ascended up into heaven in his human body and soul, he is celestial. His human nature is not everywhere. He, the person, in his deity is everywhere. But his human body and soul are not everywhere. And they're not on earth right now. They are up in heaven in glory. He was on earth, but he ascended up into heaven. God has highly elevated and exalted him by him in his human nature now being up in heaven, now being invulnerable. And furthermore, he came here on earth in the form of a servant of God, and now he is regal. Now he is in the palace of heaven. Now he is reigning on the throne of God in his human nature. And when he was here on earth, he was approachable. No halo, but as we read, he had the outward appearance of an ordinary man. Look, you saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now. Because now in his human nature, his face is shining like the sun. Apostle John saw a little vision of it in Revelation 1, 16 and 17. And he says, what he saw was out of his mouth proceeds a sharp two-edged sword, that is the word of God. And his countenance was like the sun shines in his strength. And he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as one dead. When Paul got a little glimpse of the outskirts of that glory on the road to Damascus, 
the light was so bright that it blinded him. He doesn't have in his human nature just the appearance of an ordinary man anymore. But now his face is shining like the sun in its strength. He's dwelling in unapproachable, blinding light. God has highly exalted him. He's elevated him to heaven. His coronation has taken place and his glorification so that in his human nature he's invulnerable and celestial and regal and dwelling in light unapproachable. So that's what the Bible reveals. That's the infallible revelation of the exaltation and glory of God incarnate. Secondly, consider with me now the riches of that glory. We looked at the revelation, infallible in Scripture of that glory. Consider with me now the riches, incomparable of that glory. We go on to read in that same text where Paul expounds. Not only in this text, he says, he gave to him the name that is above every name. We read in Ephesians 1, 21 and 22 what that means. It says that God highly exalted him. In, he's in heaven. He's in glory. He's reigning on the throne. And Paul says, far above all rule and all authority and all power and all dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. The glory of Jesus is unparalleled. It's incomparable. There's nothing like it. He has authority above all authority. All authority that has been given to me in heaven and on earth. His name is above every other name. His honor is above all other human honor ever conveyed on anyone, anywhere, anytime. He has supreme authority, the place of preeminence in his human nature in the universe. He has the name that is above every name. It's none like him. John sees a vision of it in Revelation chapter 19. It says his name is called the Word of God. And he says in verse 15 of Revelation 19, and out of his mouth proceeds a sharp sword, that is his word, that with it he should smite the nations. The victory and the battle that Jesus fights is a gospel verbal battle. The word of God brings the nations to spiritual conviction of sin. And he rules them with a rod of iron. And this is his name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. No other human has a name anything like it. King of kings, Lord of lords, supreme ruler of the universe, God himself incarnate. This is the name that is above every name. This describes the incomparable, incomparable riches 
of the glory of Christ. God has granted to him the name that is above every name. So, we looked at two things so far this morning, right? We looked at the infallible or inspired revelation of his glory. That God raised him from the dead. He ascended into heaven in his human nature. And he's seated in glory. We looked at the incomparable riches of that glory. That God has given him the name King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Supreme Ruler of the universe. And this is in his human nature now. It doesn't cease to have a human body and a human soul. Now, that brings us to the third and final thing to look at this morning. And that's the inevitable outcome. The inevitable result. So what results from this? What was God's design and purpose? Look what Paul says in verse 10. In order that, here's God's purpose. And it will not fail. In order that at the name of Jesus, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Supreme Ruler of the universe, God himself incarnate, God the Son incarnate, every knee would bend and every tongue would acknowledge. Now, it's kind of paraphrased in most English translations, but there are three different words that describe where these knees are and where these knees come from and to whom these knees belong. Of those, the knees of those in three different places, celestial, terrestrial, and subterranean, which is usually paraphrased as under the earth. But we have an English word for that, subterranean. So the knees of those subterranean, the knees of those on the earth, under the earth, and over above the earth in heaven, all those knees are going to bow. So who's left out of that? Let's start with those above. The saints in glory. Saints in glory. When Jesus comes back, they are going to have glorified bodies like his glorious body with real knees. And those knees will bow. You see the people that are on earth right now? Everywhere, not only in this room, everywhere on earth. Your knees will bow. Your knees will bend. And those that are under the earth, I think the idea is those people that are now in the grave. And those people that are now in the grave, the wicked, let's focus on them. What's going to happen to them? There will be a resurrection, both of the just and of the unjust. And the wicked who are in the grave will be raised from the dead. And their bodies will be reunited with their souls. And they will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, every one of them. And when they do, they will bend their knees. Every knee will bend. This is God's intention and design. And this is the result of the glory of Christ. And this result is inevitable. It cannot be avoided. It will certainly take place because God has purposed it and nobody will annul it. God has intended it 
And God cannot be overthrown. He cannot be defeated. He cannot be dethroned. Nobody can defeat God. So those living and those dead and those in in heaven, every human being that has ever lived will be raised from the dead or for the Christians that are alive, they'll be changed at the second coming. They'll be changed in a moment. And then he'll separate all the people that have ever lived before his throne when he comes back. The goats, the wicked on one side, the righteous on the other side. And he'll say to the righteous, come you blessed. And to the wicked, depart ye cursed. And they will all, every single one, acknowledge the power of Christ and the name of Christ, that he is the rightful king and ruler of the universe, that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. All the kings that have ever lived on earth will bend their knees. Every president of the United States will bend his knee. Every vice president will bend his or her knee. Every senator will bend his or her knee. Every person in the House of Representatives, every justice on the Supreme Court will bend his or her knee. Every knee will bend. And every tongue will confess. Adolf Hitler's tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Stalin's tongue will acknowledge it. The the tongue of every wicked tyrant that has ever lived with bent knee will acknowledge the authority and glory of Jesus Christ. There will be no exceptions. Every knee will bend. Every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord unto the glory of God the Father. And some will spend eternity to the praise of his glorious grace. And others will spend eternity to the praise of his glorious justice. Those that live and die in sin will be monuments of his glorious justice. The wicked of them, Jesus says, and these shall go away to eternal punishment. But the righteous to eternal life. Before they go into the lake of fire, Their knee will bend and their tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They won't love him. They'll hate him. They won't ever serve him, not even in hell. But they will acknowledge him and they will bend the knee. That's what this says, folks. That's the inevitable result the glory of Christ. He's coming back. And when he does, every knee will bend. Every tongue will acknowledge. So that's what I wanted to show you this morning about the glory of Christ. I had three things that I got from the text. First of all, the infallible or inspired revelation of that glory. 
But the Bible clearly teaches that he, God raised him from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He set him on a throne in glory. And that he glorified his human nature. So that light shines from his face. And he's invulnerable and celestial and regal. And that his glory has riches that are incomparable because his obedience was incomparable. And that he has the supreme name and nobody's higher or ever will be. And that his glory has an inevitable result. It will be universally acknowledged and every knee will bend. So by way of closing application, so what? So do you think that if this is all true, if God really has highly exalted Jesus of Nazareth, if the God-man has been highly exalted and is in heaven reigning in glory, and there's no name like his, no authority like his, and every knee will bend to it, do you think that that has any relevance to you? Do you think it does? Think it has any practical application to you? Let me ask a different question. Will your knee bend? Will your knee bend? Yes or no? According to this text. Are you going to be the exception? Will your tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord? Yes or no? You will. Everybody will. You will. You may say, I'll never do it. Yeah, you will. You absolutely will. So let me ask, it's a pretty simple, basic question. If you're going to do that anyway, what are you fighting them for now? You can't win. You're not going to overcome them. You're not going to defeat them. You're not going to dethrone him. When you stand before his throne, your knee is going to bend. So basically, you have a choice. You can bend your knee now, repentance and in faith. And when you bend your knee then, you'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Come, you blessed. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Or you can refuse to bend your knee now. And you're going to bend your knee then anyway. But then when you do, and you acknowledge that he's your judge and your king and your Lord. And what's going to happen then is you're going to hear this. Depart you cursed to the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So you're just preaching scare tactics. Look, those aren't my words. Go read Matthew 25. I'm not trying to make stuff up to scare people. I'm just telling you what Jesus said is going to happen. Just telling you the truth. Jesus said it, not me. I didn't make it up. No, the, the, the judgment day and the eternal punishment that follows it is not something made up by Baptist preachers to scare people. It's something that Jesus Christ himself said plainly. The idea that you're going to bend your knee to Jesus is not something made up to try to control you that I made up. I didn't say it. Paul said it. So you have a choice. 
I can't tell you what to do. I can only plead with you and entreat you. Don't fight against God anymore. Stop fighting against him. Turn away from a life of sinning and unbelief. Call on the name of the Lord. Because you're going to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord anyway. But listen to what Paul said in Romans chapter 10. In verses 9 to 10 and in verse 13, he said, Because if you will confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, you're going to acknowledge that anyway. But if you do it now, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that is, you believe the infallible inspired testimony, how God highly exalted him. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Because with the heart, man believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, man confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on his name. Ask him to save you. Confess your sins to God. Ask for mercy. He says, him that comes to me, I'll never, never cast out. Take my yoke upon you. Learn about me. I am meek, lonely of heart. You'll find rest to your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Confess him to be your Lord now. Bow your knee to him now in repentance and faith. Don't continue to fight against him and live in sin and wind up someday bowing to him when it's too late to do you any good. I entreat you, get right with God. For, for, for those who already have bowed and bent their knee to Christ in repentance and faith, have hope in Christ, dear people, Yes, we deserve to go to hell as much as any sinner that ever lived. I know that. But listen to this. We ch- God changed us. We read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. You bent your knee. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. He delivers us from the wrath to come, though we deserve to go to hell as much as any sinner. He delivers us from that wrath through his obedience, through his perfect life. Sinless obedience in life, atoning obedience in his death, everything that we need to be right with God, he delivers us from the wrath to come. Wait for him. Hope in him. Set your heart on him. Set your affections on him and on his coming. And everyone that has this hope set on him is in the process of purifying himself even as he is pure. Set your heart on the coming of Christ. Look for it. Wait for it. The writer to Hebrews says, So Christ also, 
having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time apart from sin to those who wait for him unto salvation. It won't be long. And all the sufferings and the sorrows and the troubles and the temptations and the afflictions of this life will be over. It won't be long. It won't be long. Set your heart on the coming of Christ. Look for it. Wait for him. Hope in him. Live like that every day. Because God has highly exalted him. And when he comes, every knee will bow. Live in the light of that glory that God has so generously lavished on Christ. Oh, dear people, may God be pleased to bless the ministry of his holy word for our spiritual good. Let's pray.